Welcome to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast, where a group of budget-minded hunters scour the woods for whitetail bucks and whatever other big game is in season. Tune in each week to hear the hilarious public and private land hunting stories and mistake-filled lessons learned. We believe that every hunt brings us closer to God and that we exist to share the good news. And now, your hosts, Christian Babcock and Jake Gaylord. Listen, guys, we wouldn't be able to do the podcast if it wasn't for you all. So we just want to say that you guys are greatly appreciated, and thank you for following along each week. And speaking of support, we are partnered with Out on a Limb Manufacturing, and I can tell you from firsthand experience, Matt and Chase are great down-to-earth guys, and they make some of the best saddle hunting products out there. Whether you're looking for a set of climbing sticks or a mobile, lightweight, hang-on tree stand, or maybe you're even a one-sticker, You mean tree Pilates? Yes, tree Pilates. If you've been to the grocery store or the gas station lately, you know that Uncle Joe is doing his absolute worst to take all your money. That's why we need hunting gear that lasts year after year. And trust me, I've been rocking the same out on a limb Shakar climbing sticks for four years and the Ridge Runner 2.0 saddle hunting platform for a few years as well. This gear is built to last. We can confidently say that out on a limb is the best bang for your buck. And it's the best gear if you want to deflate a big old buck. Make sure you use code HNTA15 at outonalimmfg.com for 15% off anything on their website. So if you can show them the same support that you guys show us, please go to outonalimmfg.com and use code HNTA15 for 15% off at checkout. Now let's get back to the podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Hunter's Advantage podcast. Today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Richard Smith. Thanks for thanks for jumping on the show with us, man. We really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. Yeah, of course. So we did uh, we did a good amount of research for the show and started digging into your background. And gosh, the more we dug, the more we found out that your <laughs> your uh, your history is very long and extensive. I mean, so I just wanted to give the listener a little bit of background. So you're, you're from Michigan. You've been hunting for over forty years. Um, well, I- almost 60 now almost 60 oh my goodness wait yeah that's that's a that's a lot of time in the woods it's awesome um so you're a award-winning outdoor writer photographer um you've won journalist of the year for sci and uh if you read any of these magazines that we've got listed over here gosh anything outdoor related you've probably wrote an article or two for them that's awesome probably (laughs) so can you tell us a little bit about how you how you kind of got in wrapped into the outdoor writing, journalism kind of stuff? Well, I've been a hunter and fisherman since I was a boy. My dad introduced me to hunting and fishing. And um, he was in the Navy. We traveled around different states. Uh, But he was from Michigan, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, as my mother was. So when my dad was close to retirement, we moved back to Marquette. um, And... I've been here ever since. Uh, I didn't hunt big game until moving back to Michigan, started deer hunting at the minimum age I was allowed to in the 1960s. Um, I did a lot of reading of magazines and books. Uh, a lot of what I read, I ex- some of the experiences I was having in the outdoors were as interesting, exciting as what I was reading. So I thought, well, geez, I could do that too. And I started writing for the local newspaper, their outdoor page, when I was in high school. 
and I've been doing it ever since. Not for the newspaper. I started writing for newspapers, expanded into magazines, and then books. Now I've written over 20 books. Yeah, I get you. Well, we can tell by your work, uh, your wheelhouse seems to be, you know, white tail black bear related. So yeah. how long have you been chasing those guys? Uh, almost 60 years. 60 years. Yeah. Started on you. started with white tails and eventually got into black bear hunting. If you're hunting uh, up the UP of Michigan, that's some, we've talked to several people on the podcast. That's about some of the toughest white tail hunting you can do, right? <laughs> it, it can be. Yes. Um, but if you know their habits and their habitat and do a lot of scouting, it's, it makes it easier. Something I've done, I don't know if you came across it in their, your research, but I've been walking with whitetails, both bucks and does of various age classes for more than 20 years. Uh, there's a local park where there's no hunting. Deer are used to people and they've gotten really used to me <laughs> to, to the point <laughs> you trust me. They know I'm not a threat. I can walk with them, photograph them. Um, and that's what I've been doing for more than 20 years. Uh, one of the things that started me walking with whitetails is uh, we had genetics favoring albinism in whitetails locally. Uh, a whitetail doe that was normally colored gave birth to twin albino bucks. So I set out to document the first year of life of those twin albino bucks, and I was successful in doing so. Um, that's what started me walking with whitetails. And I've been doing it ever since. What did you find out about the albino bucks that you that you spent time with? Well, they dispersed from the local park where they were born, but due to their coloration, they were easy to keep track of. <laughs> I'm sure they moved yeah. <laughs> to the west, oh, five miles or so. Actually, they set up in a in a cemetery, is where they ended up, and um, the. One of them had five points as a yearling, and the other had four points. They were four corn. Um, one of the bucks disappeared after that fall. The second one, the buck that survived, drew a nice nine point rack as a two year old. And did, how long did those bucks end up? I mean, obviously, albinism that doesn't set you out for a a good good career or life from a predation perspective. So, how how long did you document those those bucks well, living? And the, did they get the pretty big? The second albino disappeared after his second or third year. Uh, I didn't see him anymore. But we still have uh, albino genetics in Marquette from those two bucks. At least the two-and-a-half-year-old did some breeding uh, prior to him disappearing. And we still have a number of albino deer in Marquette from their genetics. Do you know off the top of your head how, how rare they are? Like one in 20,000, one in 90,000? I'm not sure they're more common than that here because okay. of the prevalence of the genetics. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. I mean, one one just by itself, but one one doe birthing two albino fawns. You don't you don't hear that very often. No. It but in the park where I've walked with whitetails, there was at least one albino fawn born every year for four or five consecutive years because hmm. of the prevalence of the genetics that's that's really neat there was that we had one um around grand lake in oklahoma and everyone mm -hmm. i think they named it snow white or they nicknamed it christmas. snow white or christmas that's what it was it was christmas yeah and that doe was 
eight or nine years old and eventually it wandered onto the wrong property and somebody shot it like a hunter around the lake. And mm-hmm. I mean, there was hell to pay online for who shot that deer because everyone was like, that year was a pet. It had been here almost a decade. Like you're a POS. It was a big deal when, the, when they shot Christmas. Well, even in Michigan here where it's now legal to shoot albino deer, hunters who have done so legally have been criticized for it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, uh, Richard, we recently found out about you from a few of your articles involving the Mitch Rompala buck. Mm-hmm. And in one of those articles, it stated that you have been covering the uh, this controversy basically since the beginning, since day one. How did you get wrapped up into one of the most controversial stories still to this day? Well, I knew Mitch uh, since the early 1980s, long before he killed that buck in 1998. And you refer to it as a controversial deer. And it's mm-hmm. unfortunate that that label is put on that deer because it shouldn't be controversial at all. Mitch did more to document the authenticity of that deer than most people who have entries in Boone and Crockett. He shot a video uh, from the tree stand he killed the deer from, following the blood trail to the recovery of that deer something very few hunters do. He had a game warden inspect the deer, the whole deer, before he skinned and butchered it. Uh, For most deer, that would be enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, Too many rumors and false information started circulating on the internet that, that were not based on facts at all, and that got out of hand. And those rumors and myths in false information, stole something precious from all deer hunters in Michigan and all deer hunters in North America. That deer is as real as they get. And Mitch, what I know of Mitch and his history and from what I've written about his hunting, um, there's no doubt in my mind, it's a real deer. Mm. It's unfortunate there's so much false information circulating about it. So were you a were you a friend of Mitch's? Were you guys per, like, or did you know of him and acquaintance? Well, what was the relationship before ninety eight? The uh, state record keeping organization called Commemorative Bucks of Michigan started in the early nineteen eighties. I got I was interested in big bucks and deer hunting at the time when they formed. I wrote about the organization's beginning. I edited and wrote, wrote the first record books. First four record books uh, published for the organization. Mitch was records chairman. I also edited a quarterly magazine uh, put together by the organization called Buck Facts. And I dealt with Mitch. He was a scoring chairman. He provided some uh, information about deer for Buck Facts. And he also pro- provided some letters and other stuff in Buck Facts. And we both. Uh, were involved in deer hunting. Uh, we both were speakers at deer hunting shows um, on panels of expert deer hunters where hunters would ask questions. And so I spent a lot of time with Mitch. I know there's not very many of uh, those videos circulating the internet right now of, uh, of like Mitch actually out in the woods and like, like talking about hunting, but of those few that are on YouTube and stuff, you can definitely tell that he, he knows a thing or two about whitetail definitely. And in my perspective, he was almost seemed like he was ahead of the game 
on certain types of uh, tips and tactics that that he would point out. And yes. so there's no there's no doubt he's a very impressive hunter. But uh, um, how does how does somebody go to to hold? I guess just just blankly that many records from one singular individual because I know in his younger years he had like the Missouri State record, and then uh, I think he ended up topping that one and then all of a sudden come uh to like 1985 he ended up holding the record for the commemorative bucks of michigan for the a certain state time record typical bull kill correct you yes, got sir. that in 1985 on november 8th which happened to be his 37th birthday he killed okay. that buck it's a good uh, birthday present yeah exactly it had a <laughs> nice score of 181 and seven eighths impressive rack it was a 12 point typical uh, the same number of points as the one he killed in 98, but it was only four and a half years old. I want to say only a lot of bucks are most bucks are younger than that when they're killed. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was four and a half year old buck had an impressive rack was a state record, typical bull kill for many years. Um, prior to getting that buck, he killed a number of others in the one fifties and one sixties with bow and arrow. It shows like it, the, the thing that is so interesting to me about that is, you know, you think about Michigan, you think about the UP, you think about just kind of the, I know there's big deer now, especially in Southern Michigan and more of the farmland and stuff, but someone in a state that isn't typically held in high regard for a really big deer. And it has a massive amount of hunters, a guy consistently that far back then just killing buck after buck after buck, especially record, but bucks that just, that uh pings a light bulb in my head it seems it seems like a big outlier in a place that you know isn't thought of in that way he is but he how he approaches deer hunting is why he scouts year-round how many people do you know do that not too not many. very few yeah yeah and, and i'm the same way i spend year-round photographing and studying deer and walking with them to see what they do year round. And Mitch did the same thing. <clears throat> Only he was doing it in an area where he could hunt them. It, where I'm walking with whitetails, I can't hunt them, but I can take videos and photographs. Uh, seeing behavior very few people, other people see. He mapped out six square miles of his area. He lives near a large swamp that's very wet and thick that very few other people hunted. He thoroughly mapped six square miles, knowing where doe family groups spent most of their time. He knew where adult bucks spent their time. He spent a lot of time in the winter snow tracking deer after hunting season was over, following backwards, backtracking them to where they'd been, as well as following them forward to see where they were going. He just spent enormous amount of time uh, studying deer and preparing for the upcoming season. He, Did we lose he you? wrote something that I've quoted in one of the books I've written uh, about his big bucks, that as soon as the season's over, he starts planning for the next year's hunt and spends far more time preparing for the following season then most hunters will spend hunting during that season. He's just a fanatic deer hunter. And by spending as much time scouting and having habitat 
that few other hunters penetrate in, in having where bucks can reach older age classes. The buck he killed in 1998 was seven and a half years old. Mm. Most bucks don't reach that age. That's why it had such a large set of antlers. Obviously, it had excellent genetics for antler development. The buck he killed in 1985 that was four and a half years old, if it lived another three years, it might have had similar antlers to the buck in 98. You hear those guys like, or you see movies about it. Like I, I immediately started thinking about Tarzan, like a guy who assimilates into a group of gorillas and comes out like acting like. It seems like Mitch had like an obsession, obsession with whitetail. He's like almost becoming a deer by like spending so much time in the woods, understanding the behavior, where the, down to the point where he knows individual doe family groups, like where they are. Exactly. I, I'm imagining it when you were saying it, like painting a picture in my head of a square map, you know, like of someone who has their own farm and they start to map out food plots and stuff, but he's mapping that out with like deer, like these deer here, these, these travel corridors here. It's like, and to do that, all of that without trail cameras, it's like that takes an obsession. Well, and that's the advantage of having snow in the winter to be able to track those deer both forward and backward to see how they use the terrain, where they spend their time, where they bed. He located bedding areas, feeding areas, all the types of areas that they utilize most often. Hmm. So how did this controversy, you know, really kick off? Because it seems like bigger deer that get killed gets held under a magnifying glass and, and which opens itself up to more scrutiny. So exactly. With with Mitch shooting this record-breaking deer, how did all these like allegations come up, and like like when did they all start flying? Well, they started soon after he killed the deer. And one of the first people that started rumors about the deer killed a bigger typical than Mitch with bow and arrow. Bigger the than year. the ninety-eight buck? No, bigger than the eighty-five buck. That was a bull kill. The 181. Yeah. Craig Calderon, who has a deer museum in Jackson, Michigan, killed a 190 class typical in 1986. He entered it in state records. However, uh, a search, a background check on Calderon turned up a game violation he had previously for shining deer with a gun in his vehicle. So Calderon's deer was suspended from state records for three years. Calderon could have re-entered it after that three-year period. Since Mitch was scoring chairman at the time, and he had the current state record typical, Craig blamed Mitch for his deer being suspended from the records for three years. Oh, as soon as photos surfaced of Bitch's buck from 98, Craig started with the rumors. The antlers are colored like replicas. The ears are droopy. Uh, so the rack had to be installed, put in place. Um, Craig started a lot of the rumors. And I understand he was upset about his deer being removed from state records, and he blamed Mitch. I've tried to encourage Craig for a long time to re-enter his deer, 
but he refused to do so. But it is listed in Boone and Crockett as 193 and 2.8 or something like that. It was a tremendous deer. Um, it's unfortunate that this happened. <laughs> but th that's a, a big part of where the rumors and myths and false information started is with Craig. Well, it's, it's probably not warranted, like, to... I mean, the, the rumors and false allegations like, hey, he he without sin throw the first stone. Right. But it, I, I could see it from a different perspective of, you know, you got a guy who shoots a state record, but is also the scoring chairman on the on the committee. It's like, I mean, I understand Mitch is a obsessive deer hunter and he's been a big buck killer for a long time. But from the outside looking in, you know, that can seem that could seem a little fishy. Sure. It, it, there are plenty of people who questioned Mitch's ability to consistently take big bucks like you guys did uh, prior to the deer he killed in 1998. Uh, he had so many deer entered. And because of that, all the innuendos, he stopped entering deer in the records in 1988. He completely mm. quit. Like he continued to kill big deer, but didn't enter them in the records. Correct. From starting in 88, you said? Yeah. 1988, he quit entering. He didn't want, he was hunting big bucks because it was his passion and enjoying it. And all these false information and suspicions took away from that. And he thought by stopping entering, it would reduce that. And, and it did. It didn't totally stop it but it reduced it until he killed the buck in 98. <laughs> yeah. That's almost like a duty to the deer. You kill one that big. It's like, I, I, that one doesn't deserve to sit on the shelf. Exactly. Now you guys know about big non-typical. He killed in Missouri that scored 208 and 68. And then he killed a buck in 85. There was a state record. He didn't enter either of those deer in Boone Crockett. Nobody said a word. It, he was not criticized for not entering those deer in Boone Crockett. But he did enter the 85 deer in state records. But when mm -hmm. he killed the buck in 1998, many people didn't understand Mitch's background, how many big other big deer he'd killed. And then he killed this monster buck. Many people had a hard time understanding why anyone would not enter such a deer in Boone and Crockett. But he had no intention from the from the beginning just like his other Boone and Crockett qualifying deer he'd sh shot previously. I think that's a pretty good met, um, misconception because, you know, just from the outside looking in, you see, you know, Mitch shooting record deer, entering them in, and then all of a sudden, you know, without doing any research, he enters in the 1998 book and, or I'm sorry, he pulls his application from, from the 98 book and people are starting to ask questions. Original intention was to enter it in state records like he mm -hmm. had his buck from 85. Uh, he knew what he had. He knew what it scored. Uh, but the when the controversy was over boiling uh, at the point when he had the buck officially measured by a panel of three scores late March of the following year after he killed it, uh, he had every intention of entering it However, the controversy had gotten so heated that Mitch did not want to draw commemorative bucks of Michigan into the controversy. And he knew if he entered the deer, 
that would happen. Mm -hmm. All they had to do is sign the score sheet. And the score sheet surfaced uh, last year on the yeah. internet of what the measurements for that, that rack. Prior to 2023, the only measurements most people knew was the inside spread, the outside spread, and uh, that's about it. They didn't know what most of the measurements were until last year. I have a copy of the score sheet now and anybody else uh, can access it on the internet. So for people that are just listening to this, what are some of the, what are some of the ones that really speak out to you? Like 31 inch inside, where, where does it go from there? What are some of the more miraculous measurements on that score I, sheet? I have to pull it up. I should have Beam lengths are over 30 inches for both of them, um, which is exceptional. The Milo Hansen buck had uh, what 28 inch beam lengths mm -hmm. on his deer. Uh, the time lengths, uh, 12, 12 to th 11 to 13 inches on the G twos and threes, excellent time length. And as you said, the inside spread was 30 and three eighths, is it? Yeah. Amazing yeah. inside spread. Oh, it's, it's, uh, unicorn of a buck a hundred percent. But uh, going back to kind of the uh, allegations side of it, I know Craig started the rumors is kind of what you say, but I know it only takes one match to start a fire, but when that fire starts taking off, it takes a little bit of fuel to keep it going. A good one that, that stands out to me is the wide gap between the burrs uh, because we, we've gone to like ATA shows and all that stuff. And most of the time the analogic booth, Boots have, you know, all these giant, massive deer going that, that scores well over 200 inches, whether that be typical or non-typical. Mm -hmm. And just from what I've seen, now granted I'm only, you know, an idiot from Oklahoma, but the burrs on Mitch's buck do seem very far spread compared to like all the other typical, uh, you know, 200 plus inch deer that, that are floating around. Yeah. Any world-class whitetail is an anomaly. Very mm -hmm. few bucks reached the score of the one Mitch killed or Milo Hansen killed. Uh, they're all freaks, basically. And Mitch shot a 20-minute video of the recovery of that deer from the tree stand he shot it from to where he recovered it. I'm one of the few people that has seen that entire video. And there is a clip of the recovery that uh, Denny Gurick filmed or he had a TV show about the time Mitch killed the buck in 98. Denny interviewed Mitch and Mitch let Denny use uh, the end of the video of him walking up to the deer, the arrow still in it and showing the rack from different angles and including the skull cap and the head. And it's very clear from that video that there's nothing fishy about the antlers of the rack and the emotion knowing Mitch as I did and do the excitement in his voice when he saw the dead deer and walked up to it it would be impossible to fake that <laughs> it was yeah. very real anyone and it would it's a shame that Mitch didn't release that entire video it would have eliminated all of the suspicion and speculation and controversy about this deer. However, 
his feelings were hurt big time by all the negativity surrounding the book. He tried to share his story of success with the world. He did TV interviews. He did radio interviews. He did magazine interviews uh, to try and get the story out. And what he got back was, we don't believe you. We don't think that's legitimate, dear. We think you faked it. How would you feel if you were in Mitch's position, knowing full well you took that buck legally and he hunted it for three years? It wasn't something he just happened on. He knew about that buck for three years, hunted it hard, and he actually missed it originally on November 3rd, 1998, the same fall that he killed it. Ten days before he actually killed it, he had a shot at that deer and missed it. His arrow was deflected. <laughs> he was sick. <clears throat> uh, it, it's a shame that Mitch didn't release the entire video. Well, I think about it in 2024. Or it's it's a buck like that. There would be trail cam pictures of it. There'd be people that had seen it from the road. Or I mean, maybe not. On it's it's hard for me to think about a world class buck like that going completely under the radar. You see it with the cj alexander buck it's like dude shoots a 240 inch buck and there's only one trail cam picture that surfaced of it but i just think back then it's you know it's a a vhs tape and you're walking out there and filming it's just today i it would be i i feel like everybody every case they get to the bottom of and in this one it's like the timing of when he shot the buck in the late 90s um I don't know. It makes it a little more interesting, but like you're saying, I guess there is an entire video that could prove, you know, to another extent of the innocence of it. Exactly. And there are, there were, there was at least one other hunter who saw that deer and was hunting it during 1998. Um, Mitch had seen the buck regularly during 96 and 97. And in 98, he didn't see it until late October. He was concerned that it was dead or had just moved out of the area where it had been, but it returned to the area where he'd seen it before in late October. And he found out later another hunter had seen this deer where it had moved to and tried to kill it during bow season. And the pressure he put on the bucket moved back to where it had been. Now, I don't know who the other hunters is, their name. Uh, but there's at least one other hunter who saw that buck and tried to kill it. Was the buck killed on p- private land? Uh, yes, it was. Mitch had permission to hunt private land where the tree stand was that he shot the buck. But the buck actually was bedding in a swamp on state land that uh, borders this private property where he killed it. Gosh. Mm, so there's there's probably someone out there that, that has caught a glimpse of that buck. And yes just doesn't know the extent of it. Wow. That's, that's actually insane. So, uh, how long, I guess, after he killed the buck, did he kind of, I don't want to say go into hiding, but I mean, he basically did shut off from the outside world. How long after that harvest did that take place? Well, uh, soon after the antlers were officially measured, um, Mm -hmm. in March of 99, um, that, that's one of the reasons he didn't sign the score sheet. He was the controversy was getting out of hand. Uh, his 
he was hurt. His family was hurt. There was all kinds of questions of his character and the legitimacy of his deer hunting. Um, he's one of the best bow hunters in the country. And he had a hard time accepting the fact that so many people didn't believe he accomplished what he really did. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah. that would be really, really hurtful. It's like, especially yeah. if you know in your heart of hearts, like, no, I did this legitimately. I There probably would be a boiling point where you're like, get bent. Piss off. Like, yeah. yeah, I don't care. <laughs> exactly. you know? And he wasn't hunting big bucks for everyone else or anyone else. He was hunting it for himself. And he didn't need to prove anything to anyone. He tried to. He mm -hmm. tried to get the word out about what he accomplished. And some of those videos, the TV show that Denny Goering did at the time, uh, it was just posted. There's a uh, Facebook page, the Mitch Rampola fan book, fan page. That show, that segment of Denny's show uh, was just posted recently on uh, that Facebook page. And it was extremely good quality video of the Mitch uh, showing that deer where it died with the arrow still in it. Oh, that's mm. wild. You hear it every year, regardless of how old that, that kind of controversy gets, people like to bring it up. But um, I just want you to know that, that Chris and I are, you know, relatively neutral in this thing. Like, I mean, obviously we don't have any skin in the game. So like, we're not here to persuade a person one way or the other on, on, on what to believe, but um, like I was saying earlier, people like flooding in, you know, comments and DMs and stuff like that, you know, trying, trying to nitpick this situation. We've obviously heard of the allegation of a fabricated skull plate. And I talked to a taxidermist, you know, just to kind of get a general knowledge of this. And, and I, I asked him how hard would it be to, you know, fabricate antlers on a dead deer carcass. And he said that, uh, if the skull plate was tampered with, you know, someone would be able to tell, you know, pretty easy that it was tampered with. But he said another option would be that the antlers were just cut off at the bases and then drilled out and then pinned and epoxied in. But on that flip side, you know, those won't be able to handle much of the handling process, you know, because I know uh, after he shot the buck, he did have a group of people out that seen the, the, the buck in his truck bed and actually handled it and stuff like that. So I guess that could kind of feed the myth by itself, but uh, I mean, still yet there's, there's some give and take to that, you know? Well, Gary Berger was one of the three men who measured Mitch's antlers from 98. He's a, he was a Buddha Crockett scorer as well as a measure for Pope and Young and commemorative bucks of Michigan. The, the, Antlers were in the process of being mounted, but the back of the mount was open. Gary mm. inspected the skull plate and the antlers, as did the other two measures, and they all vouch for it being a legitimate rack attached to a skull plate normally. They were there. They saw the antlers. They saw the skull plate, how it was going to be placed in the mount. And the as I told you, a conservation officer, tribal warden, saw the deer with the antlers intact before it was skinned. Many other people also saw it. 
with the deer, the deer intact before it was skinned. None of them have any doubts or questions about the authenticity of the deer. In, in almost to a, everyone who's coming up with this false information, myths questioning the deer, none of them have seen it mm -hmm. or the antlers. It's their right to ask questions, but there's so much verification of this deer. If they look at that and talk to the people who saw it, there's no doubts. Well, it's right. the, I think that's what eats people up inside is that when you want to accuse someone and they don't even care enough to defend themselves, it's like, Oh, they're definitely guilty. Then, you know, if they don't, <laughs> if they don't care enough to defend themselves, it's like, well, that's an omission of guilt. It's like, no, I just don't work for your opinion. Now there's only one side of the story. Yeah, exactly. Well, that works for their, their train of thought, uh, but he's just fed up with it. He didn't mm -hmm. want to deal with it. He tried to get the true story out to the public and he did a good job of that. But some people just turned it around back at him, calling him a fraud, calling the yeah. deer a fake. And uh, he, he could only handle so much of that. Yeah. He said enough. And that's the kind of guy he is. And I don't blame him. Who mounted that deer? I, I mean, I know he kind of dabbled in taxidermy from what I've read, but did did he mount the deer himself? I believe he did. It, it was, and as I mentioned, it was in the process of being mounted when it was mm -hmm. officially measured in late March of 1999. I gotcha. Yeah. Well, another one of uh, a questions that, that I think gets brought up quite a bit would be that uh, there's a statistic floating around, and I'm sure you know it being from Michigan a lot better than, than uh, we do, but apparently throughout the history of record keeping there in Michigan, there was only eight bucks recorded throughout the history that had spreads exceeding 25 inches. And Mitch had five of those eight. And before Mitch, there was zero exceeding the inches of 27. And Mitch had three. If I got those numbers, right. How does, how does somebody do almost the, the, uh, impossible in a sense if you're talking about the history of record keeping in michigan and hold all these records and on top of that is is fortunate enough and lucky enough to to shoot a potential world record because i understand being being like a good hunter and all but at the same time like how does someone go about that and you know and generally an area that 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 doesn't have those type of deer and when i mean those type of deer I, I know michigan probably has big deer hidden in the in the cracks but again that consistently with those characteristics of deer i guess is what i'm saying well the genetics for wide antlers has to be in the population in that swamp or mitch hunts mm -hmm. simple again what i'm doing is just playing de devil's advocate but a lot of people are saying that uh, because they have that strong of genetics within a small uh, piece of land that it, you know, those deer prior to that 98 buck ha had to uh, come from like a high fence operation. Because just just from my knowledge of things, you know, like, uh, yes, ca characteristics are, you know, 
important to an area, but when a mama doe, you know, fawns uh, a buck within the first year, that mom kind of drives that 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 button buck or, or, or spike away from her just to kind of it's nature's way of of not not uh having inbreeding or anything like that. And so right. that buck typically I, I I don't know the exact numbers and I know there's research to back this up, but I think it's like anywhere from like five to eight miles away is typically where those bucks uh relocate to. And then and granted, some just first even farther. Right. And and granted years later, you know, whether that's due to food or competition or what it may be, those those bucks, if they get kicked out of one area, they are more likely to come back to their where they were birthed just because that's like another place they know. And so like that could be a situation of that, but it's just crazy, you know, to me just having that strong of characteristics in that area and that one singular person being able to harvest that. Does that make sense? Uh, no, it doesn't make sense, but I understand <laughs> where the question right. is coming from. If yes, that's sir. what you mean. Um, but we're talking about a six square mile area that Mitch had mapped of a wet, thick swamp that very few other people hunted. And mm -hmm. there's, one factor that contributed to allowing some of the bucks he shot to reach older age classes. He told me one time about a big buck he was patterning to try and take it. He said it was spending 70% of its time in area that's close to hunting where he couldn't hunt. And he never ended up killing that deer, but it showed that information tells me he was hunting fringes of areas where there was no hunting, there served as refugees to allow some of these bucks or many of these bucks to reach older age classes. Um, it, it was either on the edge of the city limits of Traverse City, uh, close to the city limits, and there were some areas where you couldn't hunt, and he was taking advantage of that. Did he kill the majority of those record book bucks in the Michigan were in that six mile track, that square? I think most of them were uh, not all of them. I'm not sure that that buck from 98 was in that six square mile area. Uh, it was in Grand Traverse County, the same county that he killed his other bucks, but it may have been miles away. Do you know if, if that one picture, uh, floating around of his buck actually alive on the hoof is have you ever been able to confirm if that's legitimate or not or if that's I just think it is. from the information i got from mitch it, he took that photo in december of 1997 the year before he killed it he set up he it was a, in the morning he went in to the bedding area where he knew the bedding area where this buck was got in there before daylight set up on the ground and he sat there for two and a half hours didn't see anything uh and he had taken the quiver off of his bow when he was getting ready to leave he put the arrow from his bow in the quiver and snapped the quiver back on his bow and the buck stood up from its bed 30 yards away <laughs> It had been there the entire time behind a blowdown. And it stood up in response to that sound he made when he put his quiver back on his bow. And he knew he couldn't put the arrow back on his bow and he had his camera 
So he took his camera and snapped the photo. That's the information I have on where mm -hmm. that photo came from. And the rack looks similar. It would have been a, a year prior. Uh, the rack might have been a little bit smaller. In fact, uh, I wrote uh, book three of Great Michigan Deer Tales. The first mm -hmm. two chapters in this book, the lengthy chapters, are about the buck from 98. He mentioned that when that buck walked away in December, when he took the photo, he noticed two branches that each beam touched when it walked away. After the deer was gone, he got a ruler and measured the distance between those two branches the antlers touched. It was 34 inches, which is a little different than 98 when he killed it. So it was probably slightly narrower, a little bit narrow. What was the, it was 38 outside in 98. So maybe it was four <laughs> inches wider or four inches narrower in 97. You, you know how some people look at a, look at trees to like, see how big of a rub a buck is making on a certain diameter tree right. that Mitch's buck would look tiny. Cause it's so wide. It would never touch around a tree. Like you could do like a six foot diameter Oak and it's like, okay, what the, what elk is in but here making most, this freaking rub? <laughs> most of the bucks rub with their brow tines though. Right. Rather than the entire rack. Most of the rubbing is done with their brow tines. Uh, it would have taken a large tree, but he still could have done some rubbing with his uh, brow tines. One of the things that Mitch mentions on the recover, recovery video, looking at the antlers, he made a comment. It looks like he's been doing a lot of rubbing. There must have been some bark on the base of his antlers from rubbing on trees. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I killed a buck this year, uh, and I have found a fresh rub and you know, shot this buck with my recurve and I literally found the cedar in his horns where he had been rubbing that, that I bet mm -hmm. you that exact tree. Cause it was the only big rub in there. That's always mm -hmm. really cool when you can see that. Exactly. So, uh, can you kind of touch on, I guess, prior to harvesting the buck, even though he was planning on getting it in the record book just for that buck's sake, and I guess before he told people to piss off, um, I heard rumors that 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 he wasn't going to enter it in uh, anyways, just due to the uh, I guess at the time there was a some sort of rule dealing with the bows and like how much let off uh, a bow is able to have to be considered like in that record book. Right. His Can you kind of touch on that and clear it up a little bit? That Mitch killed the buck with had greater than a 65-pound let off at full draw. Pope and Young did not accept deer taken with bows with greater than a 65-pound let off. So it would not have qualified for Pope and Young. Because what was the reason that. for that? What was the reason for the regulation? Or Yes, sir. I, I have no idea. I guess Pope and Young felt at the time uh, that it gave hunters uh, too much of an advantage to be able to draw a bone hold it longer. However, they've since changed their stance on that. And Pope and Young now accepts bucks taken with compounds that have greater than 65% love. Pope and Young's like, if you're that. not, if you're not man enough to hold it back, you're not getting in this book. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, that was their, their thinking back then. Yeah. Uh, why it wouldn't have qualified for Pope and Young. Huh? So, Let's say let's say he did enter it in, or uh, he wanted to enter in 
and this this whole controversy never took place. If uh, since that rule change, would he only have been able to enter it in and that be the new world record prior to the rule change, or would they make an exception for that Bucky thing? I have no idea, but I don't think he planned on entering in Pope and Young either. If he entered in any records, it would have been state records mm. only. D does it have to be Boone and Crockett to be federally recognized? Is that the standard for, I know it's the gold standard for storing, but how does it work to be a world record? Like, yeah, can you to be an official world record, it has to be entered in Boone and Crockett. Um, they're the national uh, big game record keeper. They accept archery, firearm, uh, big game, as long as it meets their minimums, regardless of what they're harvested with, as long as it's legal. But uh, it's, it's unfortunate that the mentality of many hunters is that a buck has to be entered in an official record book in order to be recognized as a, as a world record. And as you know, probably through your research, Mitch signed an agreement with a seed company representing Milo Hansen that he would not refer to his buck as a world record uh, to avoid taking a monetary uh, benefit away from Milo for displaying his deer at shows. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Mitch had no intention of entering his bucket Boone and Crockett. So he had no qualms about signing that agreement. A lot of people claim that because he signed the agreement, that shows it's a fake or there was a problem with it. Not right. at all. That's furthest thing from the truth. As I mentioned all along, he didn't enter his previous Boone and Crockett deer Buddha Crockett qualifying deer in that record book. And he had no plans for the deer from 98 to do that. So it was no problem for him to sign that agreement. It makes sense. And another important point is the seed company that represented Hansen would never have gone through the time, effort, and expense to draft the legal agreement for Mitch to sign if they didn't feel it was real. Well, it's hard for me to believe that someone gives up the possibility, even in the late 90s, of hundreds of thousands of dollars to say they have the world record buck uh, just just to give that away to Hanson. I mean, even if he didn't have the intention of entering it, even then, it's still like, I'm assuming Mitch lived a modest life. So I'm like, that's that's life-changing money. I mean, he must have really been set in his values of, I don't care. Yeah, exactly. He didn't, he doesn't deer hunt for the money. Um, and one other thing that's important to point out that's in book three of Great Michigan Deer Tales about the Rumpola buck is that <laughs> Gary Berger was close friends with Mitch. He told me that Mitch didn't kill that big buck in 1997 because the job he had <laughs> didn't allow him enough time to hunt that deer. He quit the job for 1998 to give him more time to concentrate <laughs> on that deer. Uh, so he gave up money to be able to hunt that deer. Uh, so money wasn't a driving force behind his deer hunting or killing that deer. So I don't know the way that the, the terms of that agreement is laid out, obviously, but what if there is a new world record that that takes Milo's crown? Would would uh, Mitch be able to enter his buck in after that 
as a competitor for the world record? I believe he, he to? would. However, he, it would have to be remeasured. I believe the score sheet that was done previously after 25 years, <laughs> I, I'm sure measurements will have changed. And I suspect that Mitch wouldn't want to go through the whole shebang again. Mm -hmm. uh, even though it's legitimate and I don't think there'd be any problem in entering it. Uh, I'm not sure that he'd be willing to do so. But I, that's a question he'd have to answer. It would be eligible to enter at that point. Okay. Okay. Well, that's 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 kind of interesting to know that uh, that sooner than later he might he might be able to you know if granted I understand why he he you know took it away and 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 told everybody you know that's not why he hunts. I I completely understand that 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 concept of it because I mean there's no telling what all like mentally and emotionally he's he's kind of went through another thing i want to mention one of the reasons that mitch dropped out of sight and didn't want to deal with the controversy around this deer he was raising two sons at the time and they were affected by all this controversy as well as him and he one of the reasons he didn't want to deal with it is to help protect his sons too uh one of the one of his sons may enter his deer in the future when and if Mitch passes away, if he hasn't done so himself. Do you not think that entering in the deer would in the long run be less, uh, less of a headache than just, I guess, prolonging the inevitable, so to speak? I, I don't know. Um, it's interesting that like the Jordan buck that was a world record typical for so many years, it took many years before that deer was recognized uh it's possible that the rompola buck will eventually be entered but there's no guarantee um i i have my doubts i've been using the new exodus rival cell camera for the last couple months and i have found a beautiful mainframe eight point with tons of stickers to go after this fall Ooh. One thing I do appreciate about Exodus trail cameras is all of the cameras share the same data plan, so you only pay for what you need. A lot of cell cam companies charge you for HD pictures. I've seen prices of $5 for 50 HD pics. Exodus is going to give you unlimited HD pictures right to your phone, which is awesome when you're sitting there in the middle of the summer and it's 100 degrees and you just want to binge a bunch of trail cam photos. If you're looking for a solid cell camera with great performance and a five-year no BS warranty, go check them out. So as we all know, hunting gear is something people can make way too complicated. Arrows can be the exact same way. Instead of going down all those rabbit holes, trying to sift through the endless information that's online, and you're not really sure if it's right or wrong, Exodus makes it simple to get the right arrow for your exact setup. So go online to the Exodus Arrow Builder. It takes less than a minute. You're gonna enter your draw weight, your draw length, and how heavy of a point you're shooting. And it's gonna be that simple. Let the guys at Exodus take care of the rest. So if you're interested in Exodus Rival cell cameras or a new set of their MMT arrows, just go to exodusoutdoorgear.com and use code HA15 for 15% off anything on the website. Once again, that is exodusoutdoorgear.com. Use code HA15 at checkout for 15% off. Now let's get back to the podcast. Why do you have your doubts? Uh, because it would put Mitch in a position to answer a bunch of questions again about mm, oh, false information. Okay. You know, and he's killed a lot more big bucks since 98. And I mentioned him 
I mentioned the video that uh, recovery, I, book four of Great Michigan Deer Tales, the first chapter in this book covers, I wrote about the video that he took of the recovery, what's on the video in the first chapter in book four of Great Michigan Deer Tales. And uh, it's just very revealing. I I kind of messed up in the head a little bit, I guess. I mean, there's part of me that just likes to see people squirm and get upset about something because it looks like it seems like every people are always looking for a reason. So it would to me, it'd be an awesome outcome <laughs> that if him late in life or his children at some point would enter the buck, especially if it especially if it's 100 percent legitimate, it's like at that point, that's for the deer. Right. That that yeah, is for yeah. the deer recognition of the deer. It's not about Mitch or anyone else. I mean, I look at two, 200 inch typical deer. as like you're the steward of that buck and the buck is what's worthy of being recognized. Right. So exactly. And that's so, supposed to be the purpose of record books. Recognize the deer. And I would like to see Mitch enter the deer and <laughs> prove to the naysayers that they're wrong. But that's up to Mitch. Yeah, absolutely. And or yeah. his sons. So, uh, since you said that there is a uh, possibility of that buck getting entered and that they would have to rescore it. I think that, it would have to be rescored. Right. D does that mean that, that, uh, that the antlers are still intact? Because there's also a rumor going around that they burned up in a tragic house fire and Mitch is no longer in possession of them. Well, which I think his, is a little false, but his house is still standing, right? <laughs> Gary Berger stopped by his house. I saw Gary at a show uh, last fall, and he said he stopped by Mitch's house and it's still standing. So if if his house didn't burn down, so the rack shouldn't have burned down either. I think that's you a rumor, think. rumor, just like all the others. Mm -hmm. the, the silence makes it so much more interesting too, because the speculation and how people start to like fill in gaps of puzzle pieces of stuff that is not true. And yeah. it's like knowing that Mitch comes home every single day, looks at buck and is like, awesome. And then just sits down in his chair <laughs> and everybody else online, like, you know, just going off about it. And that he has the peace of mind yeah. 26 years later of just like, yeah, I look at that deer every day. It's awesome. It's yeah. like, you, I can't. I've, I've tried that. to interview Mitch. Oh, I forget five years ago or something like that. I I corresponded with him through letters uh, because I didn't. He had an unlisted phone number, and he was close to agreeing to an interview, and then he backed out at the last minute. Even though I consider him a friend, I'm a member of the media, and he was concerned about a flare up. And it certainly I would have wanted to write something about what I talked to Mitch about mm -hmm. and perhaps some of his bucks he's taken since 98. Uh, but the interview fell through and, and I understand why right. um, he, he just is leery of the media, the media, some of the false information and rumors and uh, stemmed from articles that dealt with things that didn't deal with the deer you know? So, yeah. Well, you see it all the time too. When somebody shoots a record book deer, it's a, it's a attack on character, lifestyle, 
activities that have nothing to do with hunting, right? It's like, well, this guy kicked a ball at a little league game and hit a woman once. They suck. Like, there's no way they shot this deer <laughs> legitimate. You know, you just see that stuff all the time. So it's like, right. I've, I've never shot a deer like that. So I have no idea what it feels like, but I could see, I could see why you wouldn't want any part of that. Yeah. It, in fact, he had, as the editor of Buck Facts for a number of years, uh, for Commemorative Bucks of Michigan, uh, I print letters in the magazine from hunters who wrote in. One hunter questioned the entries Mitch had in state records prior to 1998. Uh, it was sometime after he got the state record deer in 85. And Mitch wrote a response to that letter, which I also printed in Buck Facts. And those letters are in uh, book three of Great Michigan Deer Tales. It, his response to that letter is very telling how much time it, his comment was it would boggle the minds of most deer hunters how much time and effort he puts into scouting and preparing for the upcoming season. That's why in the the letter writer said nobody can be lucky enough to take that many big bucks. I think he had 11 in the records at the time. And Mitch's response is his scouting and preparation eliminates most of the luck factor. Yeah, you can't you can't call that luck. So he wasn't lucky. He was skilled and experienced enough to consistently take big bucks. Yeah, because you would think if a guy was doing that illegitimately and killing that many bucks, Missouri state record, a Michigan state record, a world record, it's like there's somebody that's going to, if it was illegitimate, there'd be somebody coming forward like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm his poaching buddy. True. You know what I mean? Or we that's did this true. together. It's like. And there's been no confirmation of any illegal activity or any poaching, anything wrong with his kills. Nobody has come up with any verification of a problem with any of the deer that just killed. And after 25 years, if there was any information about that buck from 98 to prove there was a problem with it, it would have surfaced by now. And it hasn't. And so there's no confirmation. Like there was never any illegal activity activity uh charged against mitch there was nothing like that it was purely a social pressure issue that mitch just didn't want to deal with that's correct that's wild that's wild that makes me love this story even more i'll be honest <laughs> oh well, my god in your research did you come up with any facts to no. show a problem you there know how any. it is there you know any. how it is yeah. there's there's, you know, one side of the story, there's another side of the story, and then there's a there's always that unspoken truth. And that unspoken truth is is somebody that that is very silent, and that's Mitch himself, right? And it's just I don't know. I mean, from the research, there's definitely more negative than positive, but that's just an internet as a whole today. But and that's exactly why we wanted to get you on, somebody who's who's been with that story since day one. And then, you know, to this day. And so I don't know. I think I think this this conversation has been eye opening. I mentioned the Mitch Rampola fan page on Facebook. Um, I wrote an article for Outdoor Life during last year after the score sheet surfaced. And the fan book page had about 3000 followers at that time. 
since then, the following is over 13,000 now, I believe. If you get a chance, look at that fan page, Mitch Rapolo fan page, if you haven't already. There's I think I'm in it. <laughs> there's a tremendous amount of information. from the. There's two of the scorers that are still alive. They've posted on the fan book page uh, about the, they still feel very strongly it's real. And uh, the game warden, Bill Bailey, is is posted on there as well, as, as well as other people who saw the deer after Mitch killed it. There's a lot of positives. Most of the information is positive on that fan page on Facebook, including the video that Denny Gering shot. Mike Avery also did a TV interview of Mitch that's on that page. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of positive that has that's growing mm-hmm. since uh, last year. What's Mitch doing today? I mean, I don't really know how old he is or whatever, but I mean, is he still hunting and doing all that stuff as well? From what I understand, yes. Uh, Mitch's son Kevin has been on that fan Facebook fan page occasionally, communicating with some of the administrators. And based on what Kevin has said, Mitch is still at it and taking big bucks. I, as I said, I haven't been able to communicate with Mitch mm-hmm. myself. He needs to uh, bring that website back, that Rampala Whitetails. Well, I, I don't know why he stopped the fan book page. I assume he started getting a bunch of negative comments or questions. And here mm-hmm. again, he didn't want to deal with it. Well, there's so many, there's so much controversy out there about deer and lis- listening to the evidence that you, that you talked about and the facts of the story. And especially since there's no criminal case that's ever been brought against him, this seems to be, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of reason apart from silence that people would question this deer. Yeah. Well, the fact that Mitch has been silent. It, it, it says people who don't believe it, they say that confirms the fact that it's fake. He won't support it. He won't. Well, he just doesn't want to deal with it. It's all false information, myths, inaccurate. And I mean, how much time do you want to spend dealing with people who don't know what they're talking about? Probably wouldn't want to burn too many calories talking to. Yeah. Most of the people on the internet today. <laughs> he's most interested in where and how he's going to kill his next buck. More interested yeah. in doing that than dealing with people who question his ability. Well, you, you see those, you see folks now, there's like a plethora of whitetail information, whether it's online articles or podcasts or YouTube videos. And you just see a guy like Mitch and all the big bucks that he's killed that guy probably has as much whitetail knowledge as anybody out there right now. And probably would have like the number one YouTube channel for like big bucks and tactic right now, but still chooses. And from, you want to talk about financial perspective, that would be a big deal. Um, yeah. And still chooses silence and still slocking these big bucks. I mean, that's, that is a, a different level. He, he could, he could produce a quality buck, a quality book. <laughs> He's already produced a lot of quality bucks, <laughs> but he could produce a tremendous book about his experiences. He mentioned, I'm quoting something that he wrote, that he keeps a, a log 
of his deer hunting experiences uh, through for more than 30 years. That was back in 98. So I'm sure he continued to do so through the present. The amount of information that would benefit deer hunters that it would be in those in those notes is tremendous. And I'm sure he understands that, but I don't I don't think he feels that sharing it would accomplish what he would want to, as sharing the killing of that buck in '98 didn't accomplish what he wanted to. Well, it's it's like if you took away that one buck, that world record buck, nobody would care. Like no nobody like all the controversy would be gone, and then there'd be a guy left that kills monsters all the time every year for forty years, and it's like. If you took away the controversy around that one buck, there would be no reason not to share all the stuff. So because of that one buck, we've lost the ability to get all that information. Yeah. It, it, and as I mentioned before, deer hunters across North America, but especially in Michigan, lost a lot because of the controversy. It's the dark side of deer hunting. Mm -hmm. So much envy and jealousy uh, that has taken a lot away. I, I had some, I've got some good quotes in, in the great Michigan deer tail books about that deer and what we've lost because of the controversy around that deer. Um, it's tremendous. And it's a shame. It's the dark side of deer hunting gives deer hunting a black eye, a big black eye. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Jake, you want to do, do you want to do close, but no cigar? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I know you said you got over 60 years of hunting experience. Almost 60. Almost 60. Well, I like even numbers. So we're going to round up. How about that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so out of that, uh, what's that one encounter, whether that be a shot opportunity or just quite frankly, quite frankly, a blown encounter that still keeps you up at night that you almost sealed the deal on, but couldn't get it done. What's your close but no cigar? Several years ago, um, I had trail camera photos of a nice 10 point. It was six by four. It was an older buck, probably five years old. I had trail camera photos of him during the daytime when I wasn't there. And I set up to try and kill that buck. And I had killed another buck earlier in the season. We have a two buck bag limit in Michigan. I'd killed another buck. I cut one of the tarsal glands off that other buck I killed and hung it from the stand where I had trail camera pictures of this 10 point. And I hunted the stand with the tarsal gland for a couple days, didn't see anything. But then like the third day, soon after daylight, here comes this 10 point. Uh, there's a creek bottom uh, 75 yards from the stand. He came up out of the creek bottom. I could see the rack coming. And he, where I hung the tarsal gland, he was had to come right by me and I was in a tree stand. There was no wind. It was really quiet. I had my rifle on my lap, but it was so quiet. I was afraid if I raised my rifle when he was coming in front of me, he would hear a noise and spook, but he smelled that tarsal gland and he was going to kick the ass of that other buck. <laughs> and, he can smell. and I, and I, I was hunting over bait. We can bait in the upper peninsula. It's illegal to hunt over bait in the lower peninsula, Michigan, but we can still hunt over bait in the UP. The photos I had were of him at that bait. 
So I figured he'd check out the tarsal gland and then go to the bait. So I didn't raise the rifle, but he, he got the tarsal gland and saw it wasn't connected to another buck and he freaked out. He <laughs> He's like, this, I already got, I already got his ass whooped. <laughs> he ran back the way he came and I was caught flat footed. I didn't have my gun up and I tried to get on him and I couldn't. And that was a beautiful buck that I should have killed. I could have quickly raised rifle and I'm used to using a scope. I could have had the scope on him as soon as I raised it and dumped him. If I had suspected what was going to happen, that's what I would have done. If I, if there's a deer encounter I'd like to do over, that's, right. that's the one. But I've had some tremendous whitetail hunts in Saskatchewan, you know, where I routinely pass up 140 class bucks and kill Ooh. 160 class deer. You know, it's tremendous hunting in Saskatchewan. Do you, um, do you do do you do outfitted hunts or do you do hunt on private or public or how do you do it? In you Saskatchewan? have to hire residents of the United States have to use an outfitter to hunt in Saskatchewan. So okay. I didn't have a choice. Um, I hunted with an outfitter that I hunted with a number of times, and uh, I killed a couple non-typicals that scored in the one grossed one seventies and they bo both netted Good in the sixties. <laughs> My best typical I also killed in Saskatchewan. It was a seven and a half year old 10 point. It netted 163 and gross 167, something like that. It was a seven and a half year old buck, beautiful buck. I hunted two weeks uh, to get that deer. I passed up a lot of beautiful bucks that most people would have been happy with uh, to kill that seven and a half year old 10 point that scored in the 160s. I entered that, that in Wood and Crockett. It, it, it didn't make the all-time list, but it made the scoring period list during the, the time period that I shot it. The three-year award. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I went to I went to Saskatchewan in last May and I shot a black bear up there and up uh just probably two and a half hours north of uh Saskatoon and some of the most beautiful country I've ever seen in my life. The cleanest water. The we ate, ate pike out of the out of the lake and it was delicious. But I heard a story. Um, a guide was telling me up there, and he said that the bucks are so big bodied up there, right? Like you come from the south, you if a lab runs by and I didn't catch the color correctly, I might have thought it was a white tailed doe. Like they're so small <laughs> in a lot of the areas. Um, but up there. He said that he had a guy that was sitting all day and he was hunting for a big old buck. And that buck finally came out and he said, man, he went back to the lodge and said, that buck is not as big as you said it was in the pictures. He said he was probably a 150 inch buck. And he was like, did you pass him like this big old 10 pointer? He's like, yeah, I passed him. He's not nearly as big as you thought because he thought he was a 170. He said somebody ended up killing that deer a couple weeks later. and It was like 180s. And the yeah. guy had passed it because the body said those deer routinely get over like 300 pounds live weight. And I had great hunts in Saskatchewan. I had a number of novice deer hunters hunting up there that passed up Boone and Crockett bucks too on the first day of hunting because they didn't know what they were looking at. Oh, Talking about black bears, I've killed my biggest black bears in Saskatchewan also. I have the number two black bear for North America in muzzleloading records. That I shot. Oh, that's awesome. awesome. It scored 21 and 14 sixteenths. Oh, that was a that, <laughs> that is I, a beast. I passed up a brown coated male that would have scored about 19 
prior to shooting the Boone and Crockett. The Boone and Crockett came out and chased this brown bear away. And it was a good thing I waited. It was a tremendous bear. And I've killed three Boone and Crockett bears from Saskatchewan. So, so 21, 21 is huge. And so I got this one scored. And he was he was Pope and Young. He scored right like 18 and an eighth or 18 and two eighths. Right. And I was like, man, I wonder what a 20s looks like. And they pull it out. It looks like a freaking watermelon. Like <laughs> they're, they're so big. Well, it's that awesome. Big 21, 14, 16 bear. He weighed, what was it, 450 in the spring. It was late May. He weighed 450. He would have been 600 pound bear in the fall. Oh my God. No, thank you. <laughs> I can't believe that. I don't want to wrestle with that thing. Because the one I killed, um, it was, I, I thought, I didn't realize how much fur was on a black bear. Like that first, you skin him out and you're like, oh, he's like 50% smaller than you thought they were. But this well, one came in. Their hair oh. is longest in the spring, if that's when you hunted. Right. Yeah. I shot this yeah. one in May and I saw this, this bear came in. I was like, that's looks big enough to me. And I shot him and he had a melon head on him. Not a huge body. I think he weighed like. 260 to 70 live weight that's a good spring weight yeah and the guy said yeah this bears well over 300 in the spring you know yeah. they get what what percentage bigger do they get in the fall it's like a lot right well, they, they gain a hundred pounds or more for those adult males they really put a, their their mating season is in late may into july they they carry a fair amount of fat out of the dens when they leave in the spring but by the end of June into July, they've lost a lot of that weight and they'll gain a hundred pounds or more depending on the availability of food during the fall. When, when is your favorite time to hunt them? Spring. Spring time. Yeah. And it's the breeding season. So the chances of seeing adult males are increased during the mm. spring hunt, but I think it's some good bears in the fall, but not as big as in the spring. Did you hunt in Saskatchewan like uh, the, the aspen sort of like real thick brushy stuff where it's like lower deer density because we were actually hunting a spot right next to a place jim shockey had hunted in northern saskatchewan for a long time and i was asking the guide i was like what's deer hunting like up here he said well you can hunt all week and not see a deer he's like but if you hear something step you better look behind you because it could be a 180 incher yeah um the area where i bear hunted was mostly jack pines there's blue it was blueberry country uh, and bears love blueberries. Of course, they weren't available in the spring, but they are in the summer. And do you hunt, are those bucks that you shot in Saskatchewan, are they those big, dark chocolate horns? Yeah, and, and where I shot the deer was in Aspen country. To me, there's nothing better looking than a big whitetail buck with chocolate antlers. Like, I think those are the best looking antlers. So yes, I went up yeah. there and saw those bucks on the, on the wall that the guide had, and of course I walk in the front door and there's like 180 inch non-typical with a 10 inch drop tie. And he's like, yeah, that one's from around here. I was like, Holy crap. It's... You mentioned Jim Shockey. Um, yeah. I hunted with Jim a number of times, including bear hunted on Vancouver Island before he actually bought the guiding territory on Vancouver. He was, he was guiding for another outfitter when I hunted with Jim and I killed uh, two bears, one with a bow that uh, scored 20 some inches. Nice that's job, awesome man. yeah that's super cool yeah saskatchewan is awesome that's a that place is near and dear to my heart it's it's so wild you get up there and we uh i think it was meadow lake is where we stopped to get gas and 
our guy to text. He's like, you better stop and get gas. Cause there's not a gas station for two and a half hours. I was like, what do you do? He said, well, when you get to, you know, a certain amount of kilometers left, you head to town and it's like half a tank or something. It's, it was crazy. I, I, I love it up there. It's awesome. I do too. You never know what you're going to see. No, uh-uh. you're which Michigan you're just North of you. Is, is that on, is that Ontario? Is that what it is? Just North of you? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. One of the point I meant to mention earlier is about Michigan state record typical buck. I was taken, I think, in 1996 in Jackson County. The antlers from that deer grossed 214 in six eighths or something, and it netted 198. It had some stickers on it that dropped the score down. But that was a tremendous deer. People say Michigan isn't capable of growing a deer like the one Mitch got. Well, one that grosses 214 wasn't too much smaller than the one Mitch killed. Jackson County, Washtenaw County, and Southern Michigan have produced some of the highest numbers of Boone and Crockett class bucks in the state, including that state record typical. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, Don Higgins. He was a whitetail consultant. He shot like three 200 inch bucks. And he said that if he wasn't already in his sixties, what he would do is go to Southern Michigan. He'd buy a farm. He would manipulate it. And obviously like try to get those deer to older age class. And he would prove, he said, he said a Southern Michigan can grow 200 inch deer, just like anywhere else in the Midwest. That's what he was saying. I I interviewed a young man two years ago who killed a big non-typical in Southern Michigan. It, it scored 220 something on land they own and managed for big deer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. The biggest non-typical on record for Michigan. It's in one of my uh, great Michigan deer tales. There's an eight book series on the biggest bucks taken in Michigan. The highest scoring non-typical on record for Michigan was found dead long after hunting seasons ended. It was suspected it was hit by a car. Uh, it died on, on some private land. I forget what it scored, but it was a tremendous uh, two, 240-ish, 250-ish, non-typical. Not killed I'm by a hunter. I'm just saying, after hyping it up this much, don't be complaining when all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of hunters roaming around Michigan from out of state. <laughs> <laughs> We've got yeah. a tremendous amount of public land in the Upper Peninsula. A lot of it is lightly hunted, and some of it's not hardly hunted at all. Hmm. You guys have done a good job just talking it down. Like people for the years have said how bad it is. And maybe that's what, we, what people need to start doing. Just like, yeah, Kansas sucks for deer hunting. There's no big deer. Well, we, we do have a low deer population. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I hunted I hunted in the farthest north county in the Upper Peninsula, Keweenaw County. The first six days of gun season, I never saw a single deer. And that's what it can be like but we had exceptionally warm weather and I had cameras on my stands. I had legal bucks on all my cameras, but after dark, but we had cold weather the second week of the season. And that's where deer activity picked up. I never did kill one during gun season. Uh, I killed a four and a half year old eight point during bow season prior to gun season, but I had, there were plenty of legal bucks around. I just wasn't in the right place at the right time. Well, if you told me, you know, hey, you're not going to see very many deer, but there's a chance of you seeing a giant, I'll take quality over quantity any day of the week. Yeah, I will too. Well, um, Richard, we really appreciate you doing this. This was fun. Um, It's always good to talk to people, people that love deer hunting. And especially, I mean, it's it's really good to hear, uh, 
you know, the story of the Mitch Trump Paul Buck from day one, from your perspective, someone in the area uh, that honestly knew Mitch personally. I think that's, yeah. that's awesome. Um, well, so, I appreciate the opportunity to do, to do this. Mitch isn't willing to speak publicly any longer about it, but I have enough information uh, that I'm willing to share. As I mentioned, I've, Three of the great Michigan Deer Tales books I wrote have chapters about Mitch's hunting, uh, book one, book three, and book four. But there's each of the eight books in the series have different collection of short stories about the very biggest bucks taken by hunters in Michigan. And I've selected the best stories uh, that all have at least one lesson that hunters can benefit from to put in those books. And for the people listening, like where can they find those those books? Um, my website, richardpsmith.com. Um, the books are all available. It can be ordered through the website. Usually I interview the hunters who take the biggest bucks in Michigan every year. And after three or four year period, pick the best of those to produce another book. I get you. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, where, uh, is there any other place that people can keep up with you? Or is your website the best place to connect with you and get a book? Well, I've got a Facebook page also. What, what is that? Just, is it also Richard P. Smith? Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you for doing this again. This was really, yeah. really fun. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate, I, I don't have a problem answering questions. Um, yeah. I know enough facts about the deer and right. I've been following it since he killed it. One of my biggest regrets, and I meant to mention this before, I knew Mitch killed the deer. I heard about it, but I, I like to deer hunt so much. <laughs> he's about five hours from me i regret not dropping everything and going and seeing the deer and, and talking to mitch directly at his house when he killed a deer i could have done that but i would have missed out on some deer hunting and i didn't want to do that at the time i i had no idea what a story it would become after 25 years well, and also in your defense, I mean, you really didn't know what all was going to take place. I mean, for no. for you, it wouldn't have been nothing probably to take a weekend and be like, hey, I'll come look at it this weekend or something like that. You know? or, or just pick up the phone. But he was inundated with phone calls that he dropped his, changed his phone. So I couldn't <laughs> call him. Yeah. You know, I thought I would be able to, but it didn't work out that way. Well... I don't know. Maybe he'll bag another world record. Who knows? And will he show the world? Probably not, but there's always he another does, chance, I guess. We won't hear about it. <laughs>